Welcome to Asian Pacific Voices Radio, where you'll find stimulating conversations that explore diverse topics and stories impacting our communities. I'm Rasha Goel. I am so delighted to introduce our guest today, whose extraordinary life story exemplifies the triumph of identity, resilience, and compassion. Born in Da Nang, Vietnam, during the Vietnam War, he was adopted by a U.S. Army major and raised in a loving adoptive family. However, his life took a momentous turn in 2017 when he discovered his birth parents and siblings igniting a transformation, transformative journey of self-discovery and reconnecting with his Vietnamese roots. As the founder of the C2C Foundation, Kirk is dedicated to reuniting adoptees and Asians from the Vietnam War era and their birth families, while also providing vital emotional healing and support for active duty U.S. military combat personnel and veterans. It is my privilege to have Tran Van Kirk joining us today on Asian Pacific Voices Radio. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. It's an honor. Oh, well, it, it's an honor for us to hear from you and, you know, just hear more about your journey. So I'd love to start off talking about, um, tell us more about what it was like. You were born in Da Nang, Vietnam during the Vietnam War, and then you were adopted by a U.S. Army major. So talk to us about that. And how old were you when you were adopted? Yeah, sure. Um, well, as you said, I was born in Da Nang in the summer of 1969 uh, during the Vietnam War. And I was adopted when I was almost three years old by a uh, army major that was serving over there at the time. Um, and shortly after I was adopted, when I was old enough to kind of understand I was adopted. Um, it was kind of relayed to me that the understanding was that I ended up in the orphanage there in Vietnam because the belief was that both my birth parents had been killed during the war. So that's kind of how I ended up with my adoptive family. Wow. Now, you discovered your birth parents and your siblings in 2017. I can imagine just the emotional toll that may have taken. How did that change your perspective on identity, on heritage and family? Well, that's a great question. That's a loaded question too. But I think the first thing to understand is that um, in 2017, when I discovered my family, uh, my story is not the norm. It definitely didn't fit the, uh, the stereotype. I wasn't looking for family. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I thought, you know, for almost 48 years of my life that my birth mother and my birth father were killed during the war. Uh, so when I was fortunate enough to find them, I wasn't even looking. Uh, I was able to find them through DNA testing. And the reason I took the DNA test wasn't for most reasons people would think. It wasn't to find family. It wasn't to look for lost, you know, birth relatives. Uh, it was to try to determine what the other half of my ethnicity was. Because I knew that half of me was Vietnamese. The other half was this big mysterious question mark that I've had my whole life. Um, you know, with me living on the coast and loving everything about the beach, fishing, surfing, paddleboarding, everything like that. Um, I just kind of adopted that lifestyle. And with my dark tan skin, I just kind of adopted uh, the Polynesian or Hawaiian lifestyle as my second half, you know, not biologically, but lifestyle wise. So that was always the running joke with uh, my family and friends was that I was half Hawaiian. Well, um, my wife at the time uh, told me she didn't think I was half Hawaiian. She thought I was something other and challenged me to take a DNA test to, to figure out what the other half was. Um, I'll be honest that when she first requested, I was reluctant because I didn't see any need in wasting money just to prove what I already knew. <laughs> so I didn't take it at first, but uh, about you know a week or two after she had asked me about it, I actually came across a Groupon for Family Tree DNA 
testing and went ahead and decided what the heck let's go ahead and put this um, you know this bet to rest and, and figure this out so uh, i went ahead and submitted my dna test sample to uh, FTDNA, and about a month later i got an email uh from an individual i didn't recognize in the the, the subject matter or subject line only said looking for my son please call me and it was a strange foreign name that i didn't recognize so i kind of dismissed it because i figured it was a scam um you know normally i'd delete those emails but for some reason i didn't and I'm glad I didn't because about five minutes later, I got another email and it was from FTDNA uh, that had my DNA results. And not only did it have the results of my ethnicity, it actually said on the email that they have a parent-child match. Uh, so uh, you can imagine I was a little bit confused because I was, you know, I was thinking, well, there's got to be some kind of mistake. That's not possible. They're dead. You know, my parents are dead. But when I looked at the name on the match from FTDNA and the name that I'd gotten on the email just a couple minutes prior, it was the same name. And it was at that moment I realized this is a Vietnamese name and this is more than likely going to be my birth mother. And it still hadn't dawned on me. I still didn't believe it. Um, it took me a little while to, to, to accept it <laughs> and process it. And a little bit of Googling uh, to yeah. find out uh, that this woman that had sent this email was actually my birth mother and had been searching for me for over 40 years. And she had put in a DNA test of her own two years prior to me putting in as part of her journey to try to find me. Uh, so shortly after I got the results, I was able to call her, connect with her by phone. Uh, the conversation was interesting, to say the least, because not only did I find out that she was alive and well, uh, I had found out that during her journey to try to find me, she had reconnected with my birth father, that he was still alive and well, and that on both my mother and uh, father's side of the family, birth mother and birth father's side of the family, I had siblings, half siblings I didn't even know existed. So as you can imagine, my world was literally and figuratively turned upside down. And uh, a lot of times when people ask me about that, I, I tell them it's kind of like the equivalent of dropping a hand grenade into the nucleus of your family. Uh, when, you know, you grow up this half a century thinking this is the way things are. And all of a sudden there's a whole other world out there. So it definitely gave me a different perspective on life, gave me a different perspective on uh, identity and uh, definitely opened my eyes to the importance of family. My gosh, I can't even imagine how you must have been feeling during that time and to even process all those emotions. So, okay, let's talk about your name change. Um, so you've learned yeah. all this information, you're processing it, but recently mm -hmm. you changed your legal name from Kirk Keller Halls to Tran Van Kirk. So what motivated mm -hmm. you to do that? And how did this decision, how, how would you say this decision honored both your adopted parents and your biological parents? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the funny thing is I've I've had four names in my lifetime. And a lot of people don't realize that, especially people that know me well. They're shocked to hear that. Um, when I was born, I was given the name Tran Van Hong by my birth mother. And the story I learned after discovering her and or her discovering me, I really want to look at that, was that right after I was born, on the orders of uh, my grandfather, her father, um, her brother, who would have been my uncle, was ordered to take me from her immediately after being born and to be dropped off at the Sacred Heart Orphanage in Da Nang. Uh, and in the process of doing that, when he dropped me off, he had the nuns or he gave the nuns a, a different name. So it would be difficult for my mother to try to track me down. So I was given the name Win Viet Hong and I was registered in the orphan registry as Win Viet Hong when I was taken to the orphanage. Uh, I was adopted when I was almost three years old. And then my adoptive given name was Kirk Paul Keller. So that was the name given to me by my birth or my adopted family. Uh, so we fast forward to 2023, you know, I'm on this journey. I've been on this journey now for, you know, since 2017. And as a part of uh, self-discovery and, and, and wanting to honor 
my birth mother, honor my adoptive family, and uh, re-embrace my Vietnamese roots, I had my gene legally changed to try and drown Kurt. That was a combination of the birth name that my mother gave me and then the first name that my adoptive family gave me. So it was important for me to be able to to be able to honor that and uh, and make that official. What a beautiful way to bring both together. How did you process all this information? I feel like that's so much to take on um, and then to learn all this information too. I mean, even to the fact that your grandfather had your name changed so you couldn't be found. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It was, a, it was a long process and it's still an ongoing process. And now, you know, that's one of the things that has prompted me to want to co-found this foundation with another adoptee who's been through some similar, very similar uh, circumstances. Her name's Rachel Galvez, and she's actually an adoptee that was in uh, the same orphanage I was in Vietnam at at a different time frame, but um, we've been through the same kind of journey. That's why we co-founded this this, uh, foundation in part to be able to to help other adoptees and birth families that are disconnected, reconnect, um, not only reconnect, but how to process that afterwards, because one of the things I've learned the hard way and she's learned the hard way and several adoptees I've learned the hard way is that it's not always a, a fairy tale ending. It's not always puppies and rainbows and that there's a lot of ups and downs uh, when you are trying to reconnect with an identity that you either didn't know or you denied, uh, you know, your entire life. Um, you know, in my case, the, the fact of the matter is I spent the majority of my um, actually my entire childhood and a part of my adult life denying my Vietnamese heritage simply because of the negative stigmas attached to the Vietnam War, attached to anything having to do with Vietnam. So I spent the majority of my life denying my Vietnamese heritage and denying that I was Vietnamese and, and everything that goes along with that. That We're talking about the stigmas, the racism, and everything that's attached to Vietnam. I, I avoided all that by denying it. So one of the things we're doing is trying to help other adoptees um, be proud of who they are, uh, embrace their heritage, uh, and no longer be afraid to feel like that they're going to suffer any negative consequences um, that I've suffered and other adoptees that I know have suffered by having anything attached to the Vietnam War to their identity. So the process for me has not been a matter of changing my identity. It's been a matter of reclaiming it. In fact, when I changed my name, one of the things uh, one of my kids asked me is, why, why am I changing my identity? And I made it very clear. And this isn't a change of identity. This is reclaiming it. Uh, so that's, that's one of the many missions yes. that uh, we're trying to do through this foundation. I like how you said it's reclaiming it, and I'm sure that word helps mm-hmm. other people as well. So it's the C2C Foundation. Um, mm-hmm. How do you feel that your personal journey and experiences are influencing your approach into making a positive impact for individuals that are affected by the Vietnam War? Well, one of the things I'm finding is um, it gives them a sense of, of reality. Uh, what to expect. And like I said earlier, that it's not always a happy ending. It's not always uh, a joyful story. I've met Vietnam uh, adoptees, Vietnam War era adoptees who have found birth parents or found birth fathers and have been rejected by them. Um, it, you know, it's a, it's a sad thing to go your whole life. And in many cases, these people are, these are people that are actually looking for their family. I was lucky in the fact that I wasn't really even looking for family. I, they just, it just kind of fell in my lap. But I can't imagine going most of my life, you know, looking for family, finding them and being rejected by them. So that's something that, you know, I always want to make sure that when sharing my journey to let people know, whether it's through personal testimony, whether it's through our documentary series or sharing other stories uh, on both ends of the spectrum, we want to be able to give a realistic idea of what to expect um, as part of this journey. Not only what to expect, but to understand that these people that are going through this journey, whether it's Vietnam veterans, whether it's adoptive families or whether it's the adoptees themselves, 
but they're not alone in this journey. There's a lot of people, there's thousands and thousands of people out there that are on a similar path and they don't have to go their whole life like I did and others feeling like they are isolated and alone and that nobody understands what it's like. Um, so that's one of the greatest things about being able to take on this, this mission is being able to network and connect with people who have similar journeys and, and to be a voice of support you know, for them and for everything they're going through. So it's been an amazing. I think it's so important that you and I are having this conversation because I think a lot of people may not have even realized this aspect. And you're right. I think for families to be reunited, I mean, I'll be very transparent with you. I, I wasn't even familiar with this, with kids being separated from their families during this era and time period and dealing with this. And it, it's it's really touched my heart to even hear what you've had to be, go through and knowing that there's so many people out there. So it's really in, interesting to me. And, and thank you for sharing this with us. In sharing what you've already created, are there any additional future um, endeavors or goals for the C2C Foundation that you would like to see as you reunite families or even provide support for others going through this, in addition to supporting veterans? Sure, sure. Well, that's a good, good, good question. And there are several answers to that, so I'll try to paraphrase it as best as I can. Um, Because one of the things I'm learning with this, this, this mission is it's perpetual. A lot of people would think that if you start a a mission or a foundation or some kind of cause that's uh, rooted in the Vietnam War that's got a timestamp on it, that's that's got an expiration date on it. And to some extent, some of our missions do because the veterans certainly aren't getting any younger. You know, I'm, I'm already halfway through my life. <laughs> well, I would like to think maybe I'm not, but <laughs> the reality is, you know, I'm, I'm middle-aged. So a lot of people would think that this this is, has a timestamp on it. But what we are forgetting is that these stories that have been buried for the better part of almost 50 years need to be shared. Uh, and they need to be shared in a way that brings honor and and pride to the adoptees, the Vietnam veterans who were denied that honor of, of a homecoming that they deserved because, you know, they were forced to abandon the war uh, by no choice of their own. So this is not only helping the, the veterans and the adoptees, it's helping a whole new generation of um, children and people that come after us, whether it's our children or grandchildren, uh, to be able to understand what our story is and, and what it was like and to preserve that history in a way that brings honor and, and pride to it. So we are finding that this is a perpetual story or a perpetual mission. We're sharing these stories through through our documentary film series or just helping veterans, not only of the Vietnam War, but all wars. And that's one of the things I always stress, you know, when it comes to talking about our veterans programs, it's not just for veterans of Vietnam War. It's for veterans of any war that are suffering from the uh, emotional effects of being exposed to to violence through their you know assignment in combat. Um, you know, having a law enforcement career, I can tell you I've experienced that and I know what it's like. And that's kind of how the origins of the programs for the Vietnam veterans and all veterans kind of came about was trying to help them figure out ways to be able to deal with emotional damage that they're they're experiencing from having been in combat. And and there's something else that's also tied into this. I understand that you're also the race director mm-hmm. for the annual Ocean View Storm the Bay race series. So talk to us about what inspired you to take on that role and how do these races benefit the military centric programs of C2C? Well, part of my journey, uh, not dealing with Vietnam, but dealing with the whole PTSD, um, I served as a law enforcement officer for 12 years in, in Tennessee. And during that time, uh, over a long period of time, I was exposed and you know to violence. Uh, I witnessed violence. I witnessed the worst humanity had to offer. Um, you know, I had to visit violence on people to help you know save others' lives. So I know what it's like to a certain extent um, to be able to experience the negative effects of PTSD. Now, I would never ever liken my experiences to that of a combat 
veteran or anyone who's been in war. I couldn't imagine that. They, I mean, those guys are my heroes. So I'm not even going to try to equate my experiences with theirs, but I do understand the effects of PTSD. I do understand uh, how it can completely turn your life upside down. And one of the many things that I found that helped me keep my PTSD uh, symptoms in check was uh, physical activity, whether it was running, the beach activities that I talked about and things like that. So uh, I've been running for several years. You know, I'm not fast. Let me just go and clarify that right now. I've had, um, you know, 80 year olds pass me, you know, power walking and races. So I'm not fast by any means, but I did find that running was a very therapeutic way for me to be able to keep my symptoms in check. So as a runner that participates in all these different races, um, I got to kind of see across the board what all these different races were like. And, you know, I got to thinking, you know, why not sponsor a race right here where I live? I live here in the Hampton Roads area. It is one of the largest concentrations of military anywhere in the United States. Uh, all branches of the military are represented here, you know, just right across the street over here at uh, Little Creek Base, you know, SEAL Team 2 and 4 are stationed there and SEAL Team 6 is in Virginia Beach. So we have the cream of the crop and the, you know, the tip of the spear, as they call it, when it comes to uh, special warfare. And with that comes all the problems that these uh, active military personnel and veterans have with coming back from the uh, combat theater of dealing with PTSD. So we went ahead and organized a race and we had our inaugural race last year. It was very successful. It was really good. Um, but we have a, it's called the Ocean View Storm of the Bay because it's right here on the Chesapeake Bay. Um, and it's a very challenging road race slash beach race because part of the race is actually on the beach with obstacle courses. Uh, and it's very military centric. And the, the, the funds we raised helped the veterans and the active duty military that are part of our veterans program. And our veterans program is called the Beach Life. And it's basically the way I you know, paraphrase it, it's saltwater therapy. You know, we provide them access to surfing, fishing charters, uh, paddleboard lessons, or just family beach days. Uh, and some Airbnbs that are discounted are given to them for free us through our, through our program. So they can kind of enjoy the beach life because I also found that not only was running, but with participating in all these different saltwater activities, it's kind of, you know, helps me with my emotional well-being, helps me with my emotional stability. And it's a good reminder to me of how beautiful life can be and how beautiful this world is. And so to be able to offer that to our veterans at no cost to them uh, just makes sense to me. So that's why we started this race. Uh, we're going to be having our second uh, annual race this uh, October. Love to see you guys out there. But it includes a 5K, a 10K, a children's mile run. Then we have a half marathon riding this year. So uh, the support, support, amount of support we got last year was phenomenal. The amount of support we're getting this year is even bigger. Um, I can only see this growing. And the more it grows, the more I can see just benefiting veterans and active duty military, especially the ones that are in this region. What a great event to be able to do. Well, yeah, you'd see me out there, but I, I'd probably be in the slow walker category. <laughs> That's all right. We got those two. <laughs> you have such a diverse background. I mean, it feels like you've just done so much. Your professional background includes law enforcement, photojournalism, multimedia marketing. So, how would you say these diverse experiences have shaped your current role as a communications professional and a US, uh, UAS pilot for the city of Virginia Beach? Well, I think it, um, it gives me a, definitely a lot of tools in my toolkit to be able to use to help others. Um, you know, it's funny because when I had all these different jobs, I had no clue, obviously, at the time that they would lead to this. But when I look back at it and I can see and understand kind of uh, as I was explaining the understanding of PTSD, and the ability to be able to share stories through my education and, and background in photojournalism and now film, documentary filmmaking, it all kind of makes sense. It all kind of comes together. And then that's all held together by the glue of my personal experience. You know, I could have all those experiences in the world, but unless I can walk 
in my own shoes and understand what it's like to be an adoptee from the Vietnam War and to grow for the issues that come along with that. And, you know, whether it's dealing with identity, racism or anything having to do with not knowing where you came from and, and even worse, not being proud of where you came from. I think all those kind of mixed together are the perfect ingredients to be able to take this foundation and be able to help others. And now, and there's one more thing I have to add. Mm -hmm. And not only are you doing all this stuff or have done all this, but you're also the director and executive producer of Mm -hmm. the Intersections documentary series. So tell us about some of the highlights on your journey with this project and how did it feel to receive the recognition you did for your work on the series? Well, it's, it's kind of funny because the, the origins for this whole film project were very humble. You know, when we started the foundation, I knew that we would need to share some stories. We would need to get our word out there and, and help people connect with our stories to understand the importance of the foundation, the importance of our missions and the impact that people can have on it. So, you know, I just started out, you know, talking to a few adoptees and saying, hey, let's, you know, let's let's do a little docu- documentary on on our stories so people can kind of understand where we're coming from. So. Originally started out what was going to be a um, you know short feature length film uh, highlighting two or three lives um, to kind of understand what it's like to be an adoptee from Vietnam and, and how to help others. And I told the team from the beginning, you know, if this this film ended up being nothing more than a uh, video that we posted on our YouTube channel or on our website, and it got only 20 hits. And I told them from the beginning, if this helps one person, impacts one life positively, to me, mission accomplished. That was the only thing that was important to me. So when we started getting into the weeds of uh, pre-production and collecting stories and everything like that, we realized this was much, much bigger than a single premiere film. Uh, We ended up having so many people that wanted to share the stories. They were eager to share the stories. They were wanting to uh, be a part of that movement to let other people know they weren't alone. So it kind of developed into what we call a docuseries. It's a documentary that's going to be a series of stories. And um, last year, we decided we wanted to go ahead and try to get a little more exposure for this project. So we submitted the pilot episode for the series to several film festivals uh, and to the tellies. And to my surprise, uh, we started getting recognition, getting awards for it. And it, it was amazing. Uh, you know, we back in October, we won uh, for uh, for best um, best inspirational film from the Cannes World Film Festival. Uh, we were received an excellence award from the Documentaries uh, Without Borders Film Festival. We were just recently selected to be featured in the uh, the Viet uh, Viet Film Inter- International Film Festival. Uh, and then we just last month won a silver telly from the 2023 tellies for the uh, 44th Annual Telly Award. So it, it was validation to us that these stories are important, they're impactful, and that they can help people. And now we're kind of on a whole nother tangent and you know, at a journey with this film project that we never thought was possible. That's going to be able to have an impact not on a, a couple of people here or not even a couple hundred, but a couple thousand. So, you know, that's still a work in progress and that's still something that you know, we're, we're discussing with people that are interested in helping us get this story out there, but it's been an amazing blessing. It's been um, a lot more than I expected. And I'm still of the mind, you know, it doesn't matter if we never go any further than we've already gone, as long as we're helping people. And we have, we've helped several, several people. We've, we've impacted hundreds of lives already. Uh, so that in itself is, is a blessing for what we, like I said, originally started as a film project, just to try to help share our stories. Well, congratulations to you. I mean, what a what a fulfilling feeling. You know, you have your hands in so many different projects and you're you're doing so many different things. And I think especially to see 
the impact that it has. So I'd love to ask you on a personal mm-hmm. level, what does this all mean to you? Or, you know, how, how do you, how do you feel inside when you see these kind of results happening? It feels good. I mean, I mean, there's, there's only no other way to put it. It feels good because, you know, what dropped on my lap, it literally dropped on my lap, uh, was a blessing. And I've always been raised and told that, you know, a blessing is great, but it becomes a gift if you pay for it. So that was my motivation. That was my reason for wanting to do more with my story instead of just, you know, keep it to myself. I wanted to be able to share that because, you know, I know firsthand how, what a struggle was growing up. I know firsthand, uh, the conflict that growing up as an, a Vietnam adoptee has. I, I understand firsthand what that conflict is. And if I can pay the blessings that I've received forward to help others, uh, to me, I'd be doing an injustice and I'd be, I'd be throwing that blessing away. And I didn't want to do that. So it, it, it's been extremely important to me. And it's been extremely important, not only for me, but for, for my kids, you know, because my kids didn't even know my story. You know, they, it was almost telltale they were adults before I started sharing, you know, a little bit about a little bit about my background, where I'm from. And now they've got, you know, birth family, you know, you know, grandmother and, you know, had a grandfather and, and, and uncle, aunts and uncles they didn't even have. So, you know, just the importance of family and being able to show them, you know, firsthand how important family is, what was extremely important. And, you know, it's just, it's been amazing. And there's so many blessings and it, it, what I'm finding is that when you share your gifts and you, you, you pay those gifts forward, you, you know, your blessings forward, uh, it comes back to you. you know, I've, I had the opportunity to reconnect with a half brother I didn't even know. Um, on my birth father side of the family, I found out when I found out he was alive, uh, and I contacted him back in 2017. I found out that you know I had a couple brothers and and a birth sister on his side of family, but one of my brothers, um, he's two years younger than me, and his name is Brian. And Brian has um, intellectual uh, disabilities. So last year, uh, my birth father passed away, and his Brian's mother uh, passed away a couple of years before that. And I found out after my birth father passed away that um, no one on his side of the family had the capacity to be able to care for him. The plan was just to let him go to a group home, uh, 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 become a ward of the state and just wish him the best luck. And I was like, man, there's no way. Uh-uh. This is my brother. You know, I, I... Yes, sorry, <laughs> get emotional thinking about it. That's not happening. So um, we opened our home. We opened our home and and took him in, and he's been living with us now for a little over a year, and doing wonderful. And for me, it was important because this is my brother, and it's also important to me because I want my my kids and eventually the grandkids to understand the importance of family. Because you know, growing up as an adoptee, honestly, that's that's something I took for granted. It really is. Uh, but after finding my birth family, and Understanding after I found my birth family, the sacrifice my adopted family, you know, made to be able to give me the opportunities I had and, and all the sacrifices they made to give me the life I had. Uh, it's extremely important for me to be able to show my kids uh, the, the value of family. Absolutely. You have such a huge heart. I mean, it's just so noble. Thank you for sharing that with me because I know how, how personal and touching that could be. I have just a few minutes here. One of the things I wanted to just touch upon really quickly was in that conversation, you mentioned the conflict that you faced growing up. Could you maybe touch upon one of the conflicts that you faced um, as you as you were growing up in your childhood? Yeah, I guess I, I could touch on some of my earliest memories growing up um, as an adoptee of the Vietnam War in the United States. Um, it was early on in elementary school, 
Um, I can remember the kids, and I thought it was I thought it was a a compliment at first. They would call me Charlie, and I thought they were referring to like Charlie from Charlie's Angels, like the boss or something like that. But you know, I started hearing you know myself being called Charlie. I started hearing the term "goop" being thrown around, and it didn't take long for me to realize that I was being called derogatory names because of my attachment in Vietnam. And it was very quickly after that that I started hiding my identity, started hiding my ethnicity. I would, I would deny, you know, my, you know, I would deny my background. I would deny anything having to do with Vietnam because it did take long for me to realize not only because of the ethnic attachments attached to some of the racism I was experiencing, but because of the political environment. You know, we were fresh off the heels of the Vietnam War. This is the early '70s, early and mid '70s, and I, you know, I'm being targeted by kids, you know, elementary kids. Um, because of where I'm from. Uh, there was one kid I can remember that he, you know, wanted to fight me and he told me, you know, your dad killed my uncle and I'm going to kick your butt. You know, I just, you know, things like that. So that, that laid the groundwork early for me to realize that if I wanted to go through life without having to deal with the effects of racism or, or the effects of the Vietnam War, that I had to bury it. And I did, I, I buried it for my entire childhood and a good part of my adulthood. Thank you for, I, I can't even imagine going through that, you know, and just feeling so conflicted and having to deal with that. And I thought it was such a, such a tricky time. And just, again, connecting to your identity of who you are. So thank you for sharing that. Um, there is so much, I feel like we still need to learn about you, but we are out of time here. Mm -hmm. How can people connect with you or even learn more about uh, the C2C Foundation? Uh, well, they can go to c2c.org and all the information on what we're doing, our missions and everything's there. It's S-E-A, the number two, and the letter C.org. So it's c2c.org. Uh, and they can learn more about the, the film project. Now, the film project is uh, kind of in a nebulous state right now because of the, the recognition and the awards that we've been uh, receiving. There's uh, you know, quite a bit of interest to take this to a higher level, a uh, much higher level than I'm capable of to be able to bring these impactful and inspirational stories to others to help other people. So um, we're hoping by the end of this year to be able to make an announcement um, about where the landing zone is going to eventually be. Uh, but right now it's not in the public domain because it's still in competition at some of these film festivals. But we're hoping with the traction we've got that, like I said, we're going to be able to bring this to a much larger audience with the end result being able to impact and help you know thousands instead of just a couple. So I'm expecting to see this on a streamer then is what you're saying? I don't know. We'll keep our fingers crossed. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. We'll let the universe decide that one. You know, it does. Mm -hmm. Because you just said the universe. That is something I live by and believe in. I have to say, when I think about your story, what a full circle as well for you in this lifetime where the universe was able to connect you, right? Like maybe a lot of people don't have that opportunity. And um, it's just so interesting to me that this was your journey and everything you experienced and, and have learned up until this far. It's, it's, it's fascinating and very, very heartfelt. So um, thank you. Yeah. Even today at times I, I, I kind of step back and look at it and I can't believe it's my story. It's just, it's, it's an impossible story. It's definitely the exception. It's not the norm because uh, like I said, I wasn't even looking for family. He just kind of no. fell on my lap and the rest is they say is history. <laughs> you know, that, that also, Reminds me to ask you too, what advice would you give to others who may be searching for their birth families or even struggling with their identity and heritage? Um, the number one advice I would say is don't give up. Uh, you know, impossible is nothing. You know, I, I thought it was impossible to ever know that I ever have birth family. Look what happened. <laughs> you know, never give up. And then also be realistic about expectations because my biggest fear or my, my biggest um, 
I guess, I don't know if you would say fear. Uh, but the thing that I'm trying to avoid is the whole situation we discussed earlier where sometimes people, they go their whole lives looking for family and when they find them, it's it's not a pretty story. It's not happening. They get rejected. The, the father rejects them. Or we even have adoptees where the father's family rejects them. You know, it's just, you can imagine going your whole life as an adoptee, not knowing if you were rejected by, you know, you're rejected by your birth mother. And now all of a sudden you're getting rejected again by, you know, your birth family and, and, and things of that nature. So I would say never, never give up and then keep your expectations, expectations realistic, because it's not always going to be puppies and rainbows. Very smart to, to look at it that way. Well, Tran Van Kirk, it has been such an honor having you here. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, and thank you for sharing your story. Thank you. Thank you. Again, a C2C Foundation. Um, make sure that you check in with him and, and find out what they're doing. And we'd also love to hear from you, our valued listeners, about any suggestions on future guests or topics that you'd love to hear about. So make sure you also subscribe to your favorite podcast platform, as well as follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and of course, YouTube. Asian Pacific Voices Radio is produced by Asian Culture and Media Alliance, which is a nonprofit that empowers our Asian and Pacific Islander communities with a voice through media arts. If you'd like to support our program, please do visit AsianPacificVoicesRadio.com. I'm Rasha Goel, and thank you for listening and joining us. And do not forget to join us next week for another exciting and thought-provoking episode of Asian Pacific Voices Radio. Until then, take care.